Where the South goes is where the nation's gonna go, right? We're bellwethers. I fully understand that there are generations of Black women behind me literally holding my back. And generations to come, this is, this is a 500-year game, a transformation. Organized people can hold their governments, hold public leaders accountable. We have a phrase in the March community called our power, because it is our power. We hold the power to take them out. We hold the power to put somebody in office that actually care about us. Welcome to Ground Game, Georgia. From Atlanta, Georgia, I'm Holly Anderson. And just across the border in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I'm Marcus Ellsworth. And we are getting into the second part of our series on faith-based organizing in Georgia as it pertains to electoral justice. And because we're still in that series, joining us once again is our very own Ashley Hobbs. How are you doing, Ashley? I'm doing good, Marcus. Um, I'm really excited about today's show. Uh, just because I'm always interested, very interested in female clergy. And today's guest is Rabbi Lydia Medwin. Lydia is a rabbi at the Temple, the oldest reform synagogue in the city of Atlanta. She's also their director of congregational engagement and outreach. I'm so excited that you have brought Rabbi Lydia to the show. It's not something that you might expect if you are outside Georgia or outside the South, but Atlanta has a big Jewish community and a deep and vibrant Jewish history uh, that winds through the civil rights movement uh, of the 60s and also as you'll hear today. And with that, let's get into our discussion with Rabbi Lydia Medwin. Can you tell us what has brought you into your work as a rabbi and also like with that vision of a broader social justice lens, whether that an inciting event in your life or is this a series of things that the path of your life has led you to? Sure. Um, so for me, first and foremost, it comes down to how I understand my faith to influence my action in the world. For me, religion should never just live on a page. It has to live in our embodied experiences. And so when I was in Sunday school as a kid in my Jewish you know, Sunday school, I listened to my teachers when they said, Sedek, Sedek, Tir Dof, we have to pursue justice. And as I've gotten older, I've realized why it says you have to run after justice. It's because it's just so elusive. It's so hard to get on top of. And once you feel like you've got one thing sort of cornered and something else runs amok. And so it's important, I think, always to keep our eyes toward that. You know, my tradition, even if it's not considered a literal tradition, has a concept of a world as it should be, a world to come that is free from some of the things we suffer with now. And I think that I understand my tradition to say that we are partners with God in that work. So we don't just put it in God's hands. We try to get in the mix and make it happen. Another thing I'll say is, you know, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee in the 80s and 90s, and I saw the words like being mouthed by the people that were my teachers and mentors who said, we live in a world of equity, color doesn't matter, your economic status doesn't matter. But then I was seeing the world around me, you know, when in my public school, all the honors kids for the most part were white and all the kids in the regular program were black. And if you don't have somebody coming to teach you, like there's a history here, there's a reason why this is, it's actually kind of by design. In fact, <laughs> you know, if you don't have somebody really teaching you some of those nuances, you start to come to your own conclusions. And so I find myself even today, pretty irate with my upbringing in some ways. And so a part of my work is redemptive for me too. I get to unlearn, you know, some of the things that I was taught sort of subconsciously, and hopefully I'm being a decent human being, you know, <laughs> and getting to do that. So I feel very motivated. And of course, 
today I'm blessed that there are people in my life with lots of differences in terms of their ability, sexual orientation, ethnicity, race, and I just love them. And so whenever I see somebody that's hurting that I love, you know, I think you can't help but act in response. So I'm interested in hearing a little bit about how both how you came to make your faith your career, and then more specifically, how you came to justice work within your faith. You know, was this always something that you were interested in? Or was it more you arrived at the temple and this was, you know, this was part of the DNA? That's a great question. I appreciate that opportunity to reflect. I've been asked this question before, and it's hard to tease apart for me the impulse to serve the Jewish community and the impulse to serve the larger world. I grew up, as I said, in Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up, you know, middle to upper class, somewhere in there. And I have a very distinct memory of being like 13, 12, something like that. And it was a cold, rainy day in Memphis. And my mom and I were driving downtown in her red minivan and the heater was on and I was all toasty warm inside with someone that I cared about. And I looked out and I saw a man sitting, he was like wrapped up in like a trash bag leaning against a mailbox and just freezing in the rain and trying to find shelter, you know? And I just had a moment of clarity wherein I thought, I come from, look, my life wasn't perfect. None of our lives are just like perfect straight lines, but I knew that like I had a good foundation in terms of a family that loved and supported me. I had a decent head on my shoulders. I was gonna get a good education. And I just saw like a sort of, I just had that one of those moments where I saw that my life was going to turn out fine. And I thought, I have it made. Now I don't have to worry about me. I'm going to, I need to be worrying about other people who didn't have all of these things that I was so privileged to have, you know? And I mean, it sounds so Pollyannish, but like that is truly my experience. And so when it came to careers, all I wanted to do was help. I was terrible at like biology, so I couldn't be a doctor. I actually come from a line of rabbis and my family and Jews who took their tradition very seriously. And so about the third year of rabbinical school, I was like, yeah, I guess I'll be a rabbi. Um, (laughs) I like the Jewish stuff. I love Hebrew, you know, and I found in my tradition this combination of my own sort of spiritual awareness and how that tied into my justice, my impulse towards justice and creating equity. There is a growing movement among young Jewish faith leaders to add deeper connections and meaning to the relationships among the people in their communities, basically creating spaces where shared interests can bring members of the synagogue closer together. Rabbi Medwin is a vocal proponent of this strategy of relational engagement. That's something I feel very passionately about. I think, at least in the Jewish tradition, I hear that it is true in some other traditions as well, in sort of main, mainline traditions. The church or the synagogue for many people has become a place of transaction, right? I come here, I get my service, I leave, right? I get baptized or I get bar mitzvahed and then I leave. And that to me does not fulfill the true potential of what a faith community could or should look like. And so in our work at the temple, we really focus on putting relationship over program, putting people and their expressed needs first and trying to help people connect to one another as that sort of sacred community that holds us in our lives when we truly need it. And that to me is about the social justice work that we do in the world at large. It's about the justice work we do internal to our community, which is itself diverse, but also dealing with all of the 
tensions that come in, in civil life, right? And sort of a microcosm. And it implicates us to be caring for one another, even as we go through life's normal stuff of ups and downs and celebrations and mourning and sickness. And so we really try to facilitate people creating their little micro community inside of our, at the temple, we have a pretty large Jewish community. We try to create these little micro communities where we empower people to care for one another and really be that first line of support and love by creating small groups. That's kind of our relationship philosophy as it relates to our engagement strategy. And yeah. And do you have any any like specific examples of where that's worked really well to like bring that community closer together? Oh my goodness, so many examples. My first thought is always of our Mahjong group. I don't know if like the world out there is familiar with this game Mahjong. <laughs> I'm aware of an who plays, yeah. I didn't know that Mahjong was such a, a big feature of the Jewish community, actually, uh, until fairly recently. It's kind of amazing, actually, right? With this game that, you know, comes from the Far East has become this major feature of Jewish life. But uh, it is. It's, it's undeniable. And so we have this group of women at the temple who decided they wanted to start a Mahjong group. And on the surface of it, it is a group of women, about eight or ten women, who decided on every Thursday afternoon they wanted to come together and play a couple rounds of Mahjong. But because we did this kind of training and visioning together of what a community should look like and feel like, they really embedded themselves within each other's lives in a way that was just beautiful, right? One person, she had a fall and she couldn't come to the games for like months and months. So they just brought the game to her and her rehab facility. Oh. <laughs> Another one's husband was struggling with an illness and they all just rallied, you know? And then the beautiful thing that happened is that two of those women decided, you know, we should like spread the love here. And so they started their own Mahjong groups. And then those two groups formed another three groups. And then they were like, well, did you know there's American Mahjong and Chinese Mahjong and also Canasta? And now we have like this crazy <laughs> number, pre-COVID anyway, crazy number of people coming to the synagogue every week to play their game and to just love on each other. So I, you know, what started out as seeming like it was just a way to pass the time has really blossomed into this incredible structure of care that we all benefit from at the temple. So that's one example of how all of this, I could give you a hundred different stories like that, including with our justice groups that on the one hand, they're really focused on their issues. And on the other hand, they're showing up for each other, you know, and to me, like that is the model of what good justice work looks like is where you are fueled by the fact that you know other people, you're in relationship with other people while you're doing the work, and that they then have your back when you want to take a risk, when you want to take a leap out into the unknown. You know that you have a sort of camaraderie with the group of people you're working with. Speaking of the, the justice groups, what kind of work do you do outside of the synagogue, like reaching out into the broader community? So first I want to say I work with the most incredible team of clergy. We're very lucky that there's lots of us there. And my senior rabbi, Rabbi Peter Berg, is just an unbelievable mensch, if you know that Yiddish word, right? Just an incredible human being. Um, and I have another colleague, Rabbi Lauren Lapidus, who worked to the, our community to ensure that the Jews of color that are a part of our community or our LGBTQ folks, our people who have differing uh, abilities, everybody feels like they are being cared for. So that is incredible work happening internally. And I think that's important if you're going to be a group that's out in the world doing work, especially you know, white or white presenting, however my fellow Jews want to categorize themselves, to be able to make sure you've done your, your work at home at the same time as you're doing your work external. 
So beyond that, we have 10 or 11 different groups doing really incredible work from LGBTQ rights to environmental justice, voting access, gun violence prevention. But I would say that sort of the flagship issue at the temple is around racial justice. The temple has a legacy of really standing up for civil rights and equality and desegregation back in the 60s, 50s, 60s. And the temple was bombed as a result of that by white supremacists in 1958. On October 12, 1958, a bomb made of 50 sticks of dynamite was placed at the temple's north entrance by a white supremacist group calling themselves the Confederate Underground. The explosion caused extensive damage, but luckily there were no injuries or deaths. The attack was retaliation for the anti-segregation activism of Rabbi Jacob Rothschild, a friend and colleague of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and prominent figure in Georgia's civil rights movement. The bombing only strengthened the temple's commitment to the struggle. And so here in the 2000s, we started really looking at that and saying to ourselves, you know, we can't just let that tell our story. We, we need an updated version. We really need to think about the ways in which we can be great allies and partners to organizations across Atlanta today. It was at that point that one of our temple members, a man named John Eaves, who was the chairman of Fulton County for many years and a lay leader with us said, you know, for our racial justice work, we really should start looking into criminal justice reform. And he started us on this journey of really trying to untangle some of the complexities of that world and set us on a path towards doing that work communally. We have two record restriction summits now under our belt. We've just now put a stake in the sand for a third one. As much as possible, we do our work in partnership with other faith communities across lines of difference, other organizations, nonprofits doing the incredible work they do every day in Atlanta. We have also been learning about the crazy length of probation and parole in Georgia, the incredible inequities when it comes to cash bail system and bail reform, being more vocal about abolishing the death penalty, being more of a presence when it comes to um, speaking out against solitary confinement, which is obviously a huge issue in Georgia. And so many other areas we've become much more sophisticated in being able to speak to and know the partners around and trying our very best to ensure that we're breaking down stereotypes, reframing narratives, and engaging with partners to do that kind of work. What has it been like within the temple, within the community there, as you're confronting, because these are, a lot of these are heavy issues, complicated issues, and I know can even be very emotional for people to, to confront and to, to really examine and decide to, to do that work on. So what has that been like for your community? You know, it's actually been surprisingly smooth for us. We've had bumps along the way when we wanted to do a record restriction summit and bring folks into the building to actually receive their restrictions. We had, you know, just a very small amount of people who were like, so we're having people with the records come into the building, you know? And we were like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, okay, let's try it. But the truth of the matter is the synagogue is diverse in lots of ways, including politically. That is a challenge as it is in, in lots of places. But this is one area where we can all kind of come together. This is a actually a topic that sort of is by, you know, bipartisan. It is something that I think as a synagogue, we've really taken a look at the numbers and been able to learn together about the inequities that exist out there. The fact that America is 5% of the world's population and yet warehouses 25% of the world's prisoners is astounding. The fact that Georgia puts people on probation and parole 
by a factor of three times longer than any other state is astounding. And it affects us on every level, including economics and you know abilities to get great jobs, not to mention all of the moral and ethical issues that are involved with that. So I think that the our community, for the most part, has been really curious, has been interested, especially as it sort of intersects with this past summer with the Black Lives Matters protests and the ways in which I hope the white community in lots of places has been re-willing to kind of look at history and look at policy and understand why things are the way they are. Our community has been excited to be able to dig in and, and do some of that work together and then act. And it feels like something they can do um, mm-hmm. about some of these big issues that might feel overwhelming otherwise. So when you're doing this work and we're, you're talking about people with a lot of different ideologies and perspectives, like bipartisan organizing, what do you think are some key aspects of that to do that work, to be able to mobilize people around issues, regardless of their very differing political or ideological views? It's never easy or simple, let's say. If it were, you know, <laughs> we'd have a very different world. But I think, again, it goes back to relationships. Our community is 153 years old here in Atlanta. Our clergy and leadership at the temple are dedicated to ensuring that our community stays together for the next 153 years. And so having that multi-generational perspective on some of these issues that allows us to, I can't remember who said it, but somebody famous said it, right? Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) So we try to walk that line as best we can, but it's all done within a context of relationship and love, you know? I don't care what your political party is. You know, if you're a Jewish or a member of the temple, if you're a human, on some level, I, I love you, you know, and I want you to be well. We try to bring people along with us when we can and share and educate. And there are sometimes when we can't and people get upset with us. Our members sometimes will get upset with us. We try to explain our reasoning because we believe that the issues that we're engaging with are truly issues of faith. We do not endorse candidates, you know, or 501c3. But we do take sides on issues because we believe that that's our moral imperatives. So, yeah, it's not always simple. (laughs) It's a dance, but we're in it for the long haul. And it's worth it in the end to do that difficult work. That's right. You were talking about intergenerational, multigenerational work. How do you go about incorporating people who have aged into their majority and say, you know, I'm here, I want to help? And I think you guys are going way too slow. You talk about being around for another 153 years. And as a very old person myself, I can say that the younger you are, the harder it is to grasp that kind of perspective. What is the process of bringing together people who have completely different perspectives, maybe not just on issues, but perspectives of time Mm -hmm. uh, because of their age? That seems like a huge challenge that I think a lot of communities overlook when they say that young people are disaffected. Such a great point. And I'm sure that there are young people out there that aren't joining us because they feel like we're going too slow. So there's the folks that we don't know. For the people that we do know that come talk to us, on the one hand, they help push us and we see that as a benefit. On the other hand, we talk about intergenerational differences pretty openly and timelines openly. And I think some people are comforted just to know there's a plan, even if it's going a little slower than they might want. There is a trajectory to do some learning that disturbs you, to have an experience that reinforces that learning, and then to take action, that cycle takes time. And if we're going to change more than just a couple of minds, 
that takes time. And so I think having those conversations with our younger folks makes it, for the most part, they, they understand that, that tension. Um, and that's true, by the way, for all of our ancient traditions, right? You always have that tension between we want to keep things the same, status quo is comfortable, and we need to be the spear point here, you know? <laughs> Like I say, the challenges is all from the young people, but I don't suppose it's any easier to convince, you know, the older members of your groups that, no, we need to listen to these whippersnappers. That that can't be easy either. No, but but I will say the youth movements of today are, I think they have something on what we had, you know, when I was a young person and I was like, go, 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 you know, I think they have a, a sophistication that we didn't have around issues, around the realities of the time it takes to change systems. I just think they're more sophisticated and I think adults are more willing to listen in some ways. We'll see if that's true in fact, but I look at things like the climate movement that is mainly a youth driven movement. And I hear my temple members who are killing it, like, let's let them go, you know, let them just support their work. And for the members that are willing to, or younger members that are willing to join our work at the temple, you know, there is kind sometimes that sentiment as well, like, let's just let them lead. They're doing such an amazing job. I think that it's redemptive for mainline religious, like places of faith for our young people to see that we, we've heard them, you know, even if it's not happening in exactly the way or the pace they want. It, there was no racial justice committee at the synagogue I grew up at, you know, there was no environmental committee. There was none of that. And so I think as they, as these kids are coming into their majority age and they turn back and look and see a synagogue is speaking their language and supports Black Lives Matter movement and other things, they feel like, okay, I think I can work, work with this. <laughs> In November 2020, Rabbi Lydia served as part of a coalition of over 100 Georgia faith leaders, supporting voters at polling places all over the state. With millions facing long lines, hunger, and even possible intimidation, these leaders hoped to serve as a peaceful presence and if necessary, de-escalate potential conflicts. Yeah, what an amazing season, election season we've had. I've never obviously seen anything more contentious. And so, you know, there was a lot of conversation that went into that. All credit to, you know, the organizers at New Georgia Project who just have done an incredible job mobilizing new voters and, and organizing us to go to the polls. We actually, the, the, that group of faith leaders was organized by Tiffany Roberts, who works at the Southern Center for Human Rights and is the social justice chair at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where we do a lot of work in partnership with, with that faith community and have for a long time. But she organized all of us to get to the polls that day. It was actually a beautiful, day to be at the polls. A, it was very quiet. Most people had already voted by then in, in Metro Atlanta. But it, it also felt very uncomplicated in the sense that I was clear that if someone wanted to vote, nothing should stand in their way. Even if it, you know, even if the, what might have been in their way was just hunger and thirst from sitting on a long line or being cold or whatever, even if what they needed was like a little bit of of like high-fiving as they came out, that felt like just a very simple act of participation in our and what we are creating here together, our civil society, right? So there were lots of thoughts, strategizing, and even a, a, a decent amount of nervousness going into that day. I, I attended a training on how clergy can be a, a de-escalating presence in situations like that. 
I had conversations with my spouse about like, where was my line of risk that day? You know, was I willing to face somebody that had a gun, you know, and those conversations felt very real at the time. Thank God it turned out to be, you know, we hoped we were just preparing for a whole bunch of nothing, which thank goodness we were, but it was a great day. Can you talk a little bit more about like, about the training and preparation for that day? Like the, like how, how these faith leaders came together and what, what your goals were and what everything leading up to that before the election, like all the work that went in, in the weeks prior. Sure. I mean, as a synagogue, we were writing postcards. I think our community wrote about 20,000 postcards to just our fellow Georgians, asking them to make sure to get registered. And I mean, like everybody did, you know, but we wanted to be a part of that. We were part of the phone banking and the text banking and all of those things. We wrote op-eds and spoke to, you know, different elected officials and to just the general public about our, our sense that being able to vote is not just a democratic ideal, but also even a Jewish ideal, because each one of us is created in the divine image we believe, and we believe our voices are therefore necessary. Otherwise, why would we be put here on this planet? So each unique voice should have their time to, to express what they wanted, you know? And we wanted to see those voices be counted, each and every one. We were just glad to be a part of that process. And then, of course, there are national groups of rabbis, national Jewish groups, that we're a part of that offered other kinds of trainings like the nonviolence one or strategies about if things were going to go off the rails after the election, who might we be talking to and what kinds of connections do we have that we could lean on to just ensure that every single vote got counted. And now that the runoff elections are done and we have our 50-50 yeah. Senate and, you know, <laughs> Georgia has saved America for the time being, pulled us You're out of the welcome. fire. You're <laughs> immensely grateful. What do you think the next, the company, the coming years look like? So like, you know, we have, there are going to be more local elections. There's going to be midterm elections coming up in two years. For you and the work that you do in your community, what is the road ahead have entail for y'all? You know, I broke my crystal ball broke. So I just don't know. I don't know. Honestly, like I think the pandemic shattered it when we thought the world was going to go a certain way and then everything shut down and here we are. It's been a year. Mm. We're still here. <laughs> and so, you know, politically in Georgia, I think on the one hand, there's going to be a lot of effort on the part of people in power to maintain that power. On the other hand, you know, no one can deny the demographics that are constantly changing. There's like 16,000 people turning 18 in Georgia every month or some, some amazing number like that, right? I'll guarantee you that the world will change, but I don't know how. We are, and from my perspective, you know, honestly, I care less about which party is in charge and much more about the ways in which their policies impact people that I care about right? The only thing I know is that as long as I'm a Georgian, I'm going to be in the fight, chasing down that justice and finding new partners to do that work with and doing my best to make sure that this is a place where everybody gets their fair share, where people are cared for no matter who or what they are, where everyone gets to feel included in this thing we're trying to create together. That's sort of a non-answer answer, huh? <laughs> no, it's good. No, it, it, it's a very wise stance too. So. <laughs> And that's real though. Yeah, no, we don't know what the future is going to hold, but cautious optimism, right? <laughs> cautious optimism. Somebody very wise said, even when the river is frozen over and everything looks all locked up and jammed up, the river is still flowing underneath, you know? And in my mind, this world, and, and maybe this is just part of my, my religious perspective, our world is constantly flowing towards justice. Even when it might appear to be all jammed up, 
and it's not a straight river it's a winding one but no matter no matter what's going on on the surface underneath i do have faith that we are all headed toward a better place and there's so many things i wish i could do more of I, i wish you know we could have more people that felt passionately about hands-on involvement. I wish we could figure out as a temple ways to get even more people involved. I wish that there we could figure out how to leverage our political will even even more sort of strategically and powerfully as not just as a temple, but really as a faith community writ large. And yeah, it's not like all rainbows and sunshine. It is definitely lots of stops and starts. And on that note, is there is there something like a particularly challenging moment that you had in your community outreach and your organizing? As you've probably detected, I am a sort of an eternal optimist. It can be challenging to be in a community that is so very privileged to help people reflect on that privilege in ways that is not from a stance of self, self-defensiveness. We, we were really lucky to be able to pull together first a book reading and then a four-part series on white supremacy and privilege and white guilt. And we had these conversations and I'm so grateful that we had hundreds of people involved in that. It would have been great to have thousands, but not everybody is there. But nonetheless, I am so grateful. I think the proportion of people that are involved in our work is high. I always want it to be higher. Um, before I get off, can I tell can I tell you guys about another project I'm working on? Oh, yes, please. Yeah. Yes. Oh, good. That's usually our last question. Is there anything we didn't ask you about that you just want to talk about? <laughs> Do you want to ask that question <laughs> before I pre- uh, we'll, we'll drop it in later, you. don't worry. Okay, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> the magic of the editing room. Actually, we're going to leave this in because it's funnier. <laughs> um, well, thanks we, for letting me preempt. We're not fancy. <laughs> thanks for letting not me preempt your question. Yeah. So uh, for the past two and a half years, so we were very, very privileged to be asked by then Reverend, now Senator Warnock, as he was trying to organize his thoughts about how how the faith community could respond to mass incarceration. He reached out to Auburn Seminary, which is a 250-year-old social justice seminary in New York, to partner with them around around this response. And his second call was to us at the temple to join him as a core partner on this work. So together, we created the multi-faith National Multi-Faith Initiative to End Mass Incarceration. It is a partnership between the Temple, Ebenezer Baptist Church, and now Odyssey Impact, which is a documentary creating organization. Together, we're, we're really working on how to engage more faith congregations to do this kind of work and do this kind of learning together, how to change the narrative and the theology around mass incarceration and really see our tradition really lean into the fact that so many of our traditions are about redemption and multiple chances and freedom and liberation, you know, and, and so much more. Then lastly, you know, our hope is that all of that will, will coalesce around policy changes, specific policy change in different states and regions. So we're working in six different regions right now. Georgia's one of them. And we also have a partnership with the music industry. We're in Calling All Crows, which is a music related foundation that connects issues to artists to concert goers to do that work so we, we've been partnering them for the past year we had a conference in 2019 at Ebenezer Baptist Church where we had about a thousand people show up that was an incredible weekend and since then we've just been doing the the activity of movement building and trying to spread the word that faith communities should have a clear and concise message about what it means to incarcerate people and the failure that that represents that that is a solution we've decided is acceptable, along with all of the other collateral consequences that come along with it. 
if you want to check that out www.endingmassincarceration.com and we'd love to see people there if they want to join us they are welcome and if there are any Jewish listeners out there we'd love to hear from them too at the temple I'm showing up for Mahjong when it's safe to you again <laughs> let's do it I will be beating down your door since there's a whole Mahjong league like you know you, <laughs> you right. gotta figure out which team you want to be on Holly you gotta, you gotta my Nana about... would be extremely disappointed if I did not at least try I'm saying so when's tryout season for the Mahjong league <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Rabbi Lydia for just sharing her time, her expertise, um, and her heart with us in this episode of Ground Game. To learn more about Rabbi Lydia's work or the temple, you can visit www.the-temple.org. You can follow us, as always, on Twitter and Instagram at Ground Game Pod. You can visit us on the web at groundgamepod.com, where you'll find show notes, links to past guests' work, and transcripts of every episode. And until next time, take care of yourselves and be good to each other out there. Our show was produced, written, and hosted by Holly Anderson, Marcus Ellsworth, and Ashley J. Hobbs, with the help from Ground Game Georgia volunteer cabal, including Brian Gutierrez-Shelton and Ben Tiernan. Editing by Arlo Rodriguez and Douglas Reyes-Serran. Our theme is by the brilliant Jonathan Sanford. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Designed by Jasmine Johnson. That's me. Nicole Mackey runs our social. Ground Game Georgia is a production of Unir. Now remember, start with welcome to Ground Game Georgia. Welcome.